Welcome to the Sales Management Podcast, your source for actionable sales management strategies and tactics. I'm your host, Coach CRM co-founder, Corey Bray. No long intros, no long ads. Let's go. Got a special show for you today. We're going to talk about senior leadership inside the sales development function. And I've got Jimmy Chen, Director of Sales Development over at Envoy with me today. And you should see his background. It holds a special place in my heart. Growing up, I used to watch King of the Hill. You've got the alley there. Boom hour and the boys are standing out there drinking some beers in the alley. They're not there, but your head's right in front of where they'd be. Yep. (laughs) As they would say. (laughs) Yep. I love it. Hey, Jimmy, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well, Corey. Thanks for having me here. Yeah. So yeah, I think there's not a lot of content out there about managing managers inside the sales development function. So I think there's a few different lenses to look at this through. So if somebody's a chief revenue officer, somebody in senior leadership, how can they take away some things from our conversation today to gut check where they're at in their org? Or if somebody's an aspiring second line manager, or even somebody that's still an individual contributor wants to get there someday, it'd be great to just to learn some lessons from you. So I think as we, as we kick it off, I'll leave it a little bit open-ended what are some of the biggest takeaways that you've learned from managing managers? Yeah. Uh, first and foremost, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, you have the opportunity to develop the next generation of leaders in an organization. And I think the pace of growth within the sales development leadership realm, particularly over the last couple of years, have just been absolutely fantastic to see. I've seen so many new SDR leaders at a you know director level and higher be appointed, which I didn't see maybe four or five years ago when I was first starting this thing. Um, but, you know, managing managers is really interesting because a lot of it is about building cadences. It's about, you know, setting the right vision for the organization and then subsequently identifying the specific areas that each manager needs in order to be successful. I, I wish there was like a simple, you know, playbook t- to say like, hey, like if you do this, all of your SDR managers are going to be totally successful. And then, of course, from a higher level, from the perspective of a VP of sales or a CRO, it's understanding that, you know, the experience that each manager brings and the enablement around that manager. So the structure uh, of the organization, um, the go-to-market motion, how well it's defined is going to be a huge driver of whether or not they're successful and naturally their immediate manager, right? Of helping them build a lot of those skill sets out to support their BDRs. So it sounds like there's a big piece here where you're, you're diagnosing and prioritizing what each individual manager can work on to have the biggest impact on their team. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the challenge that a lot of new managers run into is they think, oh, I'm going to do a quick managerial training and thus everything is going to be taught to me. And at least I have a lay of the land in terms of what it is that I'm going to be you know, able to do in order to be successful. And while there are a lot of curriculums out there, there's always you know, this, the basic how to, have, uh, how to have great one-on-ones, right? driving feedback, um, you know, leading with a vision and the like. I think what's really interesting and one part of this that people need to pay a little bit more attention to is understanding the individual and helping that person develop because just because you tell them, for instance, you need to run effective one-on-ones, here's how you do it, doesn't necessarily mean that once they're live in practice, they're actually going to be able to do it, right? So the coaching element here over time, the reinforcement and everything is going to be super, super important for them to, to be successful. Yeah. So they're coming in here and a lot of these folks didn't study management in college, right? Do you have, no. Let me ask you that question directly. How many managers have you managed and how many of them studied management in college? 
Oof. Uh, I don't ball, think you can any, ballpark this. I, I, I think uh, it's a really interesting ballpark when the number is probably zero. <laughs> Got it. Uh, I wish that they did, and I don't, I don't know how much of a carryover there would be directly, but of course, being familiar with the concepts, you know, we look for, you know, comparables, right? Like leadership uh, activities in school or other parts of the business, right? Um, just their general leadership nature, I think, is a really strong way to start. Right. And then of course it's building the skill set. But yeah, none none officially. I wish I wish they had. I wish I had, honestly. I would have loved to have seen what that would have been like. Yeah. Well, I, I was fortunate to have done that. And I think oh, yeah. the the interesting thing is there's just you've just got more tools in your toolbox that you don't have to learn. And everybody can learn them. They're all there. They all exist. Yes. The the fascinating thing though is there's no two-day business school out there. There's yes, lots of two-day boot camps. Yes. But nobody's giving you degree programs and management in two days. And there's a reason for that. And it's because they would no longer be accredited institutions if they started doing that. Yeah, 100%. You just can't. There's no shortcuts, man. You just can't no. do it immediately. That's right. I mean, again, it's it's a lot of practice and reinforcement, right? And I think the challenge I mentioned earlier is that everyone thinks that there's a big list of skills that they can just take a look at and, and work on asynchronously. But, you know, at the end of the day, you need the guidance and mentorship of someone that's experienced to diagnose that and better understand whether it's communication styles, whether it's your ability to work cross-functionally, whether it's your ability to, um, you know, influence without authority, which I think is a big one. There's just That's so many huge. Oh, yeah. Especially when you're in sales development, because you've got the sales team and you've got the marketing team and you don't have authority over any of them, right? Neither. Yeah. And if anything, you know, I, I hate to say this, but the perception of a lot of uh, senior leaders is that sales development is not yet at the place where it has that influence, right? I mean, I think it is, uh, uh, unfortunately, and, and I don't think just undeservedly so, sort of seen as a little brother, little sister function to one of the two. Um, and I think over time, we're probably going to see a you know self-led sales development program, but I think that's far and few in between. I've heard arguments that marketing should be under sales development. I don't support those arguments. I don't not support those arguments. I'm just stating that I've heard that. Marketing on your sales development. So are you saying that the marketing team reports up to sales development? Because well, so here's, that. here's the argument. And, and I think this is, a, this is a fun one. Again, marketing people, don't come at me. I mean, you can. That'd be kind of fun, actually. Maybe we can debate this. It, that'd be, that'd this be would fun. be a fun debate with some, some marketing folks and some skills. Yeah. So here's the, here's the argument. I think it's it, Chris Beal and Ryan Reiser always say that the list is the strategy. And if the list is the strategy, meaning that, and this this doesn't necessarily hold if you're super transactional and super SMB, but if you're selling mid-market, if you're selling enterprise, you should be able to get a list of the companies that should buy your product, your ideal target market, like the, the target target market. The, if, we're, if we're talking darts, we're talking the red circle and maybe the green circle, the bullseye. Sure, sure. And if you know what that is, then the question becomes, how do you get in front of those folks? And obviously there's lots of things you can do. You can run digital campaigns, you can do events, you can do cold calls, you can run email campaigns, you can do all these different things. But in a world where you've got marketing teams using marketing automation tools and sales development teams using sales engagement tools, which are often used in similar ways. And then you've got digital ads being run. Are they run against the same people we're calling? Are they not? What about the same people we're emailing? It seems like there's not as much coordination there as there could be. Yeah, and I think that's the big challenge, right? When you think about a sort of a high-level issue that always comes up between sales and marketing, it's exactly the coordination of efforts, 
right? There's this perspective on the sales development side that marketing is doing whatever marketing's doing and marketing is saying that the sales development team isn't doing what they should be doing uh, at times, um, which is why, you know, ABM, ABX has been so popular uh, over the last couple of years. And the question becomes who owns that motion, right? And, you know, whether or not there's like a singular person to coordinate all the plays and activities, there's a perspective that it could be owned by marketing. There's also a perspective where it should be a truly you know, joint cross-functional effort, right? To coordinate those activities. So I, I don't know if there necessarily needs to be like a, you know, simple, if you do this, this, everything's going to be successful because we're talking about the nature of alignment, which kind of goes back to one of the many managerial skills that one needs to have at a senior level, right? Which is the ability to influence without authority, work well cross-functionally with their peers, right? Give me a couple examples there. So influence without authority. Tell me about a time where you've seen it go right and tell me about a time where you've seen it go wrong. Yeah. So I think uh, influence without authority is really interesting because there's a there's a really great book called Influence Without Authority by Dr. Richard Cohen, who's a professor at Babson. And he talks about the mutual alignment of strategies and interests, right? So a, a good example of this could be something as simple as getting from a BDR example, getting AEs to put down closed loss reasons after they close out an opportunity, mm -hmm. right? From the perspective of the BDR leader, it's one, they're probably being paid for it and they want to better understand why they potentially aren't being paid for it. But a higher level understanding here is perhaps getting alignment with the, um, the account executive leaders saying that, hey, like by putting in this information, we're able to get feedback and understand what's happening or not so that we're continually recalibrating around this, right? And the influence without authority there is helping that AE leader see that in doing what you're suggesting actually is beneficial to their interests as well, right? So that both teams can get what they want. And on the BDR management side, it's getting that feedback that's critical to better understanding what's happening in the field because sometimes they don't have that line of sight. And then for the AE leadership, it's an opportunity, an invitation, really, for them to participate in sort of the BDR go-to-market motion, as well as maybe more selfishly, potentially get better qualified opportunities, right? So it's okay. really helping people see the win, right, rather than trying to convince or manipulate people to do something that they don't want to do. And I think that's the really big difference, because when I say that out loud without qualifying, it, sometimes that's what it comes off as. Yeah, you got it. What's in it for them? And then, and then in this example, I mean, the product team wants to see that too. Hey, you built this product. We we introduced it to somebody, and they didn't want it. Yep. Why? Exactly. Exactly. Seems like a useful thing to know. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing that's hanging with me, based on something you said earlier, which is getting the managers ready to become great managers. Yeah. How do you start that earlier before you even promote someone into management? See, you've got somebody. They seem high potential. They come to yep. work every day. They've got a good attitude. They're good to work with. They do their job. They're accountable yep. Yep. and they're in an individual contributor role. You see them as having management potential. What are some things that you can get them doing now to develop that skill set so they're not starting from scratch when they get the nod to go get into yeah. management? Yeah, 100%. Um, this is a, probably a much longer topic, but you know, I have sort of this maturity model I think about of SDR leadership development. And it starts off with the IC transitioning to some sort of team lead-esque role, team lead to manager, manager to senior manager, whatever that means at your company and so forth. And I can go through it later. But um, to answer your question directly about first identifying the person that would be really good uh, at management, typically you would think about, you know, what is the perception of this person among their team, right? Are they dependable? Are they bought into helping other people su uh, succeed? 
can they have some sort of demonstrable record of success? Because naturally, we can't promote someone to be a leader if they haven't demonstrated that they can do the job, right? And the second part of your question is, how do you actually help this person prepare? I think first and foremost, it's the recognition and the confirmation that that's actually what they want to do. So recognition on, on the part of the rep of understanding, okay, well, I am doing these things now as a rep, as an IC, and this is the impact that I'm having on other people. And I like having that impact on other people. I want to help them, right, generally. And that I understand that this is something that's really different from becoming an account executive, carrying a quota and, and the like, right? So like they have to know what the role actually is. And then the management side, how a person would help them kind of better develop these skills is really doing a diagnosis of what it is that they're good at from their current role that they can start taking managerial elements. So owning perhaps a process of some sort, right? So uh, in the example of a potential BDR, let's say that they're really good at cold calling, like they're a cold calling fiend, right? Machine. And exactly. They just, machine. they just are super good and super good, not just in the fact that they probably make a lot of calls, but that they're very strategic with their calls. So like, they can have conversations with adults yeah. about business problems. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And helping elevate their standing in some ways, right. Has two, two, uh, two impact, uh, two pieces of impact. The first is it gives them credibility to their peers, right. That this person is on this track that's trying to help them in the event that they actually transition to a team leader or manager. And then the second is they actually get practice doing it to again, confirm or deny that they actually want to do more of this. Right. And over the course of, I don't know, what is often six to nine months, they go through this journey of first living the motion a little bit. So maybe they start running team meetings and seeing what that's like. And this is as a team lead. As as an IC slash team lead. I can yeah. talk about the team lead thing in, in, in a second. Oh, so this is still as an IC. So you're having someone even run the team meetings as they're still in the IC role. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, that's it's cool. like an hour, an hour a week or, or no, 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 like 30 minutes a week, like two hours a month. It's not that yeah. big of a time. But what, what you're really looking for is, are they just going, showing up and doing it? Or are they putting in the time to be very thoughtfully, very considerate about what they're doing, right? Yeah. It's like your role as a matter before you even bestow upon them something different, you want to see whether or not they're putting skin in the game here. Skin in the game here means that they're volunteering their time to help other people, that they've thought about what it is that they're doing, whether they're pulling a report and sharing, you know, sharing what they did with their peers, whether it's running a team meeting and being thoughtful about how messages are being communicated, et cetera. It's not just show up and play, right? So you're, and what, what you're really doing is de-risking the interview process because yes. if you interviewed someone off the street, you'd ask them a question or two and you'd have to gauge their ability to do this based on their responses. But in this case, you're actually observing it over an extended period of time. Yes, that's right. That's right. And then at some point, if a team lead position is available and every organization is quite different with what team lead actually may, means, um, for me, I typically like to have people that have like a half quota, like a reduced quota and ownership of some sort of formal managerial practice. So that could be running a, a role play of sorts. Maybe they do call coaching for a few hours, right? Because we're very good about blocking our time. So it's how do you just change some of those blocks for something else, right? Um, and then after, I don't know, what is six months of doing, six to nine months of doing this, naturally we time that with an official sort of promotion interview for a managerial role. And over those course of those six to nine months, I'll have all the notes to better understand what are they good at? What are they not good at? Right. 
And from a developmental perspective, which is your original question, right, of how do you actually help them form? One, it's getting them to do part of the work so that they can kind of kind of live in and feel it. But then there's also a curriculum in place, right? Thinking about how do they actually develop that wider scope of what they need to do in order to be a leader, not necessarily just a manager. So I expect over that six to nine months that they would be taught how to effectively, you know, use all of our technology stack, right? Because not everyone knows everything into, you know, intuitively. Things like reporting, things like working cross-functionally with people, right? Um, it's about showing up as a manager and the credibility around that because they, they have to overcome a, a big hurdle. And then on the personal development side, it's how they manage themselves and their time. It's understanding their why in taking this role, helping them start to define their managerial style, helping them understand co their communication style right over that period of time. And from that point, as they're a team lead, they're doing all this development, they're owning some processes, it should feel very natural that they move on to a full managerial role. Naturally, they still need to interview for it. And then they make that transition to, to be a full-time manager. So you obviously know this stuff inside and out. You just gave a very concise, detailed explanation of it. Do you have a formal, I think you said curriculum, do you have a formal curriculum that you use that you have these folks follow? So I actually stole this curriculum um, from this guy named Chris Pham. And he wrote a book way back in the day when he was working at MuleSoft called like, oh my gosh, it's like Revenue Growth 10X Your Pipeline. Yeah, I know, Chris. It's, got, it's the one with the unicorn on the front of it. Yes, that's the yeah. one. That's the one. And I, I, I bought the book when I first started. I reached out to Chris and Chris actually shared with me his curriculum. He called it the FAM BA because his last name is FAM and it's an MBA. I thought it was freaking brilliant. That's cool. <laughs> And, and part of it, the way that he structured it, and I really like this, is like it's drawing inspiration from outside leadership, right? So like, you know, getting people to read books about, you know, like Wooden and like um, the Sir Alex Ferguson one, you know, like you know, team of teams, et cetera, right? And then there's also this piece where it's uh, guided development um, based on HBR articles. So like managing yourself, managing others, et cetera. And I've actually taken quite a lot of that into how I coach my managers and give them basic curriculum because- the philosophy is the same, you know, before you manage other people, you need to manage yourself and under, you know, have a very strong sense of self, who you are, your rationale for doing all these things. And then subsequently understanding what is the change or what it like, what is the thing that you're actually trying to do as a manager, right? And it can't just be, I don't want to be a rep anymore. I don't want to hold a quota. Like, good luck with that because you yeah. still have a quota. It's just, you know, a multiple times bigger than your current quota. Right? And things it's harder. Like that. And it's yeah, harder. It's definitely harder. Yeah. It's, I always tell people, I, I say, I know this isn't what y'all want to hear, but SDR jobs is not the hardest job in sales. There's a lot of jobs harder. It's just the job that you've had that's been the hardest job that you've had so far. Yeah. Managing the, if you believe it's the hardest job in sales, then managing the person that's doing the hardest job in sales and being pulled aside and up and down, <laughs> that's yeah. hard. So here's, here's the next thing I want to dig into. So who owns the development of this person? So you're talking about all these things that you're doing. Yeah. Who owns that? the ideal situation or like what actually happens day to day? <laughs> well, let's walk, walk me through both because so, if so, nobody owns it, it's not going to happen and it's going to get delayed and people are going to yeah. be frustrated. They're going to say, you promised me the world and all I got was Venus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's still pretty good, but Hey. Yeah. But nobody lives um, on Venus. Elon doesn't even want to go to Venus. He wants to go to Mars. <laughs> um, so I, I think uh, it, it depends. I'm glad that you clarified what you, yeah, you were alluding to when you said owning this. Yeah. I think um, there's there's a part of it 
this of like running the curriculum that I think should be owned by sales enablement, revenue enablement. Okay. The challenge is that, you know, manager managerial development from sales enablement is just something that doesn't really happen until you're a much farther along organization, right? It like, rarely ever happens. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, I, yeah, possibly. I, I don't, you know, I, I haven't actually worked at like a public tech company, so I wouldn't know. I imagine, I hope that they have it. But oftentimes it's like, you know, part of like a corporate L&D program, which is really, really vague and, but yeah. still helpful, right. Of like how, you know, all the basics. Well, that's, that's what happens is that it's because yep. I've, I've worked with tons of these companies and yeah. what ends up happening is if they have a manager program, it gets diluted down to, we need something for all managers. Yes. That's exactly it. It's terrible. I, yeah. you know, I'm glad that they have something rather than nothing, but it's nothing there. But if you're and managing what, eight MIT backend engineers. Yeah that are all really, really good at coding. Because the funny thing about engineering teams is like, okay, so you have a bunch of people that are 30. They've sure. got 20 years of experience. Sure, yeah. If you've got BDRs that are, well, most BDRs aren't 30, whatever. We're not going to get into age because I know yeah, that yeah, bumps yeah. you up. Whatever. It, you're going to have BDRs that have like one or two years of experience. And yes. they don't. They haven't been BDRing since they're 10. Uh, and, and so the, the management structure and the folks that are getting moved into those roles, it's just, it's so different. And if you don't have... Yep role specialized management training for your companies, you're going to be in toast. And by the way, if you want sales specific coaching training for your team, I've got a free coach for a free course for you on coaching. Email free stuff at coachcrm.com, free stuff at coachcrm.com. And I'll get that course over to you. All right. So back to, yeah, that was my free stuff. Was it free stuff at coachcrm.com? Yeah. Let's go. I'll send you an email after this. I said no long ads. I didn't say no ads. That's the trick. So (laughs) here's the, uh, Here's, here's the question then. So yeah. uh, enablement should own it. What actually happens? Well, well, yeah. So enablement should own it. What actually happens is like nothing. Nothing ever really happens, right? I, I think what happens day to day is like they just say figure it out and then they you know interview. And actually, it's really interesting that most people interviewing SDR managers don't really know what to interview for SDR managers. So they interview for all the general stuff, ah. right? Because a lot of CROs, VPs don't have the tactical experience to determine whether or not they're good at these things. And I don't know how, how people think about it, but I, I find it to be very different because, you know, I've spoken to a lot of sales leaders in the past and the way that they think about it is like, well, is this person like basically a junior SMBA manager? And, and the answer is no, it's, it's kind of a different role. because of Way different. Way different. Um, but, you know, the, the question you asked about, you know, who should own it, I mean, what will end up happening is, if you happen to have like a second line leader that cares about this topic, uh, whether it's a second line SDR leader or a sales uh, development oriented sales leader, then they'll put focus on this. I don't know how structured that's going to be, unfortunately. And a lot of that is, you know, not drawn from experience, I don't think, which I think is, is a bit of a, is a, is a bit of a shame. Um, yeah. Well, cause the less experience someone has, they can still do it. They just need a stronger curriculum. And a stronger yeah. curriculum takes a lot of time from someone with experience. Yes, that's that's exactly it. And I think part of it is like, it's the nuance of how this actually works. So like when you asked me earlier, give me a very specific example about influence without authority. That's a the, the example I gave you about getting AE leaders to get their AE supporting closed loss reasons, right? Is a very specific SDR leadership issue. Any SDR leader on the call will probably know exactly what I'm talking about and what they've ran into, right? Um, it's like working with marketing, for instance, uh, if you don't work on the marketing team, um, on, you know, like MQL criteria, yeah. right? That's always a big one. 
or promotion eligibility for BDRs to AEs, for instance, like things like that. There's always topics that, that will always come up and how you handle that. Um, so it's, yeah, it, it's kind of hodgepodge. I think there's a market for this. So I don't know if you ever want to expand into this, but coaching SDR leaderships, like that's a high point of leverage. I just don't think it's heavily invested. In. I think coaching sales leaders as a whole, like, you know, managers, frontline managers, et cetera. I think there's a lot of work that just needs to be done because a lot of people are given the keys to the castle, so to speak, and they are told to figure it out. And a lot of it is learned by doing. And some people do that fantastically, right? Like they just learn, but not everyone does that. And there's obviously trade-offs when you have the learn by doing types that are successful, but all of the ones that need careful considerations, not actually getting that same level. Well, it's funny because you look at, you look at all the other high paid professions out there, accounting, law, medicine, finance, none of those people learn by doing. They learn by rigorous study and then careful application yes. along with ongoing professional development. Yes. Maybe not finance. Well, I guess if you're defending regulated, all these people have continuing education requirements. Generally. Yeah, that's true. Tests, classes, conferences. And it's not the sales conferences that we go to where it's vendors talking about their products and then we drink. <laughs> so yeah. I think that there's, there's a room for a lot of rigor. And if you want that free coaching course, everybody that's free stuff at coachcrm.com. So You've got somebody now, we've we've developed them as a team lead. They're ready to become a manager. Now, sure. what's the thing that happens differently once they've been anointed a manager? How do you make that that specific shift? Such a good question because you know, we're we're taking the example of a person that's in-house being promoted from a rep to a manager, and there's a huge hill to climb, right? So uh, from the perspective of the of the leader that promoted this manager, there's a lot of diligence that this person needs to have, like the the mat the let's call them director, right? The director for now. The first is really helping them control their optics because now that they're a manager, it's this, oh, you're a manager now. Hey, you know, it's it's not that, right? Like the day that they're a manager, they need to be treated as a manager by all of their equal peers. Yeah, because they, be, they used to be sitting next to this person that's you know, right. on their team. That's that's an interesting that's right. spot to be in. Now, bigger that's companies right. can deal with that. They can move them yes. around and so it's yep. shuffle. But if you're smaller, you're you're taken on the team that used it's to be size as well. The, the way that and I'm not saying this is the best way to, to do it, but the way that I've helped people overcome this is uh, I visibly defer to them on things. And I, as the director, tell all my cross-functional partners, all the AE leaderships that they work with, et cetera, that, hey, like this person is now a manager and this is in their scope and they should deal with, deal with it. And that I direct, redirect people to them. So you don't let people go over their head? No. No, yeah. no, no. Cause here's, here's, this is the, I, I remember this phrase from when I was younger. Cause my friends would say stuff like, you know, when I was in my early twenties, people were like, oh yeah, Tom's my boss, but Greg's my real boss. Yeah. No, you've heard phrases like this where they're, they're like, oh yeah, that technically. And then all of a sudden you end up with this person that's, that's basically yes. Tom Smykowski, who's just the guy from office space that talks to the engineers. So the customers don't have to. And then they realize that what would you say you do here? He doesn't do anything. Exactly it. And that's you don't exactly want to be that it. person because that's a dead end yep. career. Yep. You're it's legitimizing the role. Yeah. Legitimizing so the person. So you're pushing people back. So people come to you and they're like, hey, Jimmy, big boss man. You know, that's what they used to call me at this one company. It was pretty funny. Uh, like, hey, big boss man. Nice. What? Yeah. Uh, I'm also gigantic. So that's part of it. <laughs> I'm 6'6. Six, six. I used to be 265, recently 215. You oh, want to wow. lose weight. Oh, my gosh. Don't do Ozempic. 
just eat less and do intermittent fasting. That's my no memory. idea what that is, but I am intermittent fasting and I am trying to eat right. So maybe yeah, Ozempic maybe you is can the, add that into the email and the free stuff at coachcrm.com. Ozempic is this drug that people are taking. It's a diabetes okay. drug. And I, I think it's great for people that need it, but like, oh, wow. if you just want to lose weight, like just eat less and do intermittent fasting. You don't yeah, need right. medicine. Yeah. <laughs> so move more. <laughs> The, okay, so you got the person that is coming to you around the manager. You push him back down. Now you're you're reinforcing that manager's authority, which is That's awesome. Right. That's right. So important. So important. Yeah. And what I also do is like I, you know, at least for the first couple of months, um, also not just redirect people, but also defer to this person, right? So for instance, someone, you know, the CRO asked me, so what's happening here in this team? I'm like, oh. Let me go to so-and-so and get you an answer. Yeah. Right? Or get him some FaceTime with the CRO, right? Because yeah, that's important yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Because yeah, nobody exactly. likes the boss that's always blocking them from power. Yeah. No, I like I don't I don't care. You can talk to my boss. I don't need to talk to my boss. The less I talk to my boss sometimes, honestly, the better. You know? Yeah. That's um, confidence. So so that that's number one, right? It's like legitimizing this person and their authority. The second is helping them feel like they're now the manager. And that means things like um, helping them understand communication with their peers, former peers, understanding, you know, equal level communication, upward communication, et cetera, right? Things like how they come off as, you know, is super important because a lot of people, because management is kind of a soft skill. I mean, it's a hard skill, but also a soft skill, right? And it's a lot about people, relationship, communication. Well, it's way more of a soft skill than an individual contributor, like, yeah, yeah, it's true. like flipped. It was this, and it, I see is like eighty percent hard, twenty percent soft, and then it flips. Yep. And by the way, I mean hard. Not Jimmy and I are not talking about hard isn't difficult. We're talking about hard skills and soft skills. Yep. Hard skills being things that you do, soft yep. skills being more how you're perceived yep. and how you navigate organizations. Yeah, I mean the hardest skill a manager can do is like build a dashboard or something. <laughs> yeah, or like right. pull some data. Right, like you don't even do that. It, the, the, well, so the funny thing with that is that that turns into a soft skill because it's how good are you negotiating with sales ops? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And the influence without authority thing, right? Kind of comes out differently. It's like, That's how it. do you get people to do stuff for you? Right. And reprioritize, et cetera. But, but the one thing actually that I want to share here for anyone that's listening, that's a rep becoming a manager for the first time, at least a CR manager for the first time is this phenomenon I call the super rep. Like when people are uncomfortable, they tend to do what they're really, really comfortable. Right. It's like this, self-protectionist, you know, mechanism. And super rep is like, why don't I just call with the reps for the next six hours or something, right? And that's probably the most counterproductive thing that, that a manager can do, in yeah. my opinion. I know, I, and I think there's room for it when it's a morale thing, it's sort of a spiff or, or whatever. But like, as a manager, you can't do their job for them, right? I think that's the biggest thing about this. You can't do their job for them and it's not a, hey, look at me, everyone. This is how I do it. And that's how you should do it. Like, that's really counterproductive for the culture. Your role as a manager formally is to support, enable, empower these people so that they can do their best job. The moment that you do something for them or you show them you know, how it's done and, or, or whatnot without very clear parameters is, is failing. And a lot of new man, every single new manager that I've ever coached or worked with or whatnot, they all run into fall into this trap. They're like, well, they don't see me as a credible leader unless I can do their job better than, than they can. Well, guess what? They don't care. 
it's a sh- you know it's 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 a fun thing but that's not the culture that you want to create that my boss is better than me than everything right it's that you want to create a culture where my boss is going to help me get to my own level of personal success that's higher than what it is before yep. right and doing things like that to just show off or make yourself feel comfortable is completely counter generally to the culture that I like to create with people and and I actually don't know if you know that's the best use of time. Like if you're spending a couple of hours a call, why don't you spend a couple of hours listening to them calling and giving them the coach? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you, you nailed it. It's about people do other people's jobs for them to make themselves feel more comfortable. Yes. It's yeah. a self-esteem building exercise for somebody. Right. And you can't do that. That's right. It's not, right. and it's not going to impress them because you're okay. So here's what's going to happen. So let's, yeah, since we're talking about sales development, let's take cold calls, for example. Yeah. So if I'm the newly appointed sales development manager and I go and I make cold calls, one of a few things is going to happen. Maybe one, I won't do a great job. And they'll be like, Corey's not even good at this. Why is he my boss? Yeah. Or I do an amazing job. And they're like, well, of course he's way better than me. He's the boss. I could never do that good. How is either one of those things productive? I think that's what you're saying. Yeah. And also like, why are you, well, like, why are you doing that at all? Yeah, exactly. Cause I'm sitting here with Jimmy. If I'm sitting here with Jimmy making cold calls in a conference room somewhere and Lisa's sitting out there struggling to figure out yeah. how to get a cadence built. Then Lisa's sitting there like, why is Corey doing someone else's job for them instead of coaching me on this thing? Or burning or burning the list down. That could, yeah. you know. And what happens if, if the manager actually books a meeting? Then there's like a whole conflict of interest or not conflict of interest, but there's like a like a ethical thing here of like, well, who does this meeting go to? Yeah. Did I just take something away from someone else? Right? Do I need to do this for everyone? Yeah, right. right. Yeah. That gets hairy. Why? you know? Totally. Yeah, man. And I think the, the, the other piece along these lines is that managers end up doing more work. And every time I see someone like, I'm so busy, I, can't, I don't have time to coach. It's like, cool. I'll tell you, if anybody out here has worked with me, you know what I'm about to say. Show me your calendar. Oh, yeah. My number one coaching move when I'm ever coaching any managers is I say, show me your calendar. And if they're complaining about somebody on their team, it's like, show me their calendar. And yep. I look at their calendar and I'd say, 10% of the time, I'm super impressed. Hmm. I've done this, what is it, Tuesday? So it's been last week. I did it five or six times last week. Probably saw 15 calendars. I saw one that I liked. Hmm. Hmm. The rest of them were disgusting. Yeah. Like, how is this person busy? Oh, my Doesn't God. Doesn't make any yeah. sense. Oh, preaching to the choir here. So uh, kind of an aside, but I, I do the same thing. Right. Like I, I talked about it's the sales blocking. management podcast. We do asides all the time. Yeah. Run oh, with dude, it. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's crazy because <laughs> the, <laughs> the first thing I think a new manager does <laughs> is fill up their calendars with completely random shit. <laughs> and a lot of it has no business value. And it's just them thinking about what the managerial role actually means, which is code for sitting in on uh, meetings and stuff. And, and, and I fell victim for this for a very long time, candidly. I mean, you know, different organizations, different situations, et cetera, right? But it's, uh, if you don't have at least like, I want to say like three, like an average of like 10 to 15 hours a week, direct as a frontline manager, interfacing with your reps, managing or doing something related to coaching. So for instance, like, you know, you have like, of those 15 hours, you have like, three or four hours where you're like reading their emails or re- reviewing their calls, like not live in it. Cause that's a lot. Right. Um, then there's something that needs to be reassessed there. 
because yeah. you have 40 hours a week and you're spending 25% of the time, less than 25% of the time actually coaching. What's the point of you being in the role? You know, Doesn't like make how many sense. alignment meetings do you truly need? And I, I think, I, I think the caveat here, of course, right. Is this is applicable to a team. Maybe there's a few ma- more managers, more than just one manager. You're not a single per- manager shop, right. Where you have more defined responsibilities. I, I do want to be very clear that there's a slight difference here. Because, you know, when you're in an early stage startup, for instance, or where situations where you're the only SDR manager or one of two, and there's a lot of other things going on, you end up unfortunately having to take on a lot more, which- But if you're, if you're the only SDR manager and you work 40 hours a week, you're going to get smoked. It's just yes, not yeah, going to work. Unfortunately, that's also the, the reality. So you have a choice. You can yeah. go work at a bigger company and work 40 hours a week and have tons of support and structure and process around you. Or yes. if you want to be the person that influences that, builds it, and gets more executive level yes. face time, then go work at a smaller company and bang out yep. sixty and build your career. Your choice. Yep. I don't care. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's exactly it. I, I mean, I, I think regardless of all the number of hours that people yep. are quoting, I still think at least twenty five percent of that, or at least ten to fifteen hours a week, right, should be directly interfacing with your team and driving your team forward in terms of development, in terms of attainment, and like, right, yep. because like your team is the nature of BDR teams, right? They are learning the job, learning how to work for the first time if at that, right? So there is an element here where you're expecting incremental progress over time. And that's something that's very unique about the BDR leadership role because of the types of people that you work with, right? Often new to sales as a whole, new to tech, new to you know, SaaS and stuff in, in the case of a SaaS business. So walk me through how that difference differentiates remote versus in the office because I know you guys are... Uh, Envoy, you're you're into office tech. So someone's in the office, someone's remote. What are some considerations to have here? Yeah, I I think your cadence may look a little bit different depending on the structure of your business. So um, if you have a hybrid sort of business, right, there's more in-person time where you'll have, you know, live coaching sessions, whether that's formal or informal, maybe you do like call blocks and uh, across the team and it's not, you know, distributed it's distributed more broadly across the team versus just one person um it's having specific weekly one-on-ones that is more of like a pipeline review and then subsequently a developmental one where it's a you know the way that i recommend it is like bi-weekly so like one it's you switch week over week so one week is like career development and then the next week is like specific coaching case study focus time and then there's a, the ad hoc coaching that happens throughout the course of the week through your interactions, right? So that's in-person hybrid, right? If it's remote, I think you can facilitate a lot of the same uh, movements, but it's having more documentation around stuff. So it's like more more structure around what you're doing versus what you're not doing. Um, so things like you know an email ac- account review, for instance, where you go through with the rep and you walk through their their specific account and, you know, figure out how to really get in there. If you're going for a more account-based motion, maybe it's a territory review um, over time. Maybe it's specific calls. Maybe it's objections that you're running into. Maybe it's email writing. Maybe it's brainstorming new strategies, right? So, you know, I mean, AI is a big topic here and I don't want to get into AI at all today, but uh, thinking about how to best use that, for instance. AI safe space. Oh God. I, I mean, I love AI. I think I just need to, really wrap my hands around it, but maybe wow. another time. What is it? Yeah, we don't have enough time for that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the best, it was, I got to tell you this though, it's funny. It was my buddy, this guy I'm really good friends with now. I met him years ago. 
and he was on a panel at this event. There were like 400 people in the audience. The, the moderator says, and I, I hadn't met him. I went and talked to him afterwards. Like we go on vacations together now. Like this, this moment became, made us friends. And the guy goes, what is AI? Oh, and he, look, he, he looks at the panelist and he says, oh, that's easy. It's a two character domain extension that doubles your valuation with VCs. <laughs> Not anymore. I lost it. I thought that was the funniest thing ever. Yeah. yeah now they're getting most, rid of it. The AIs, the IOs, like what was an IO, you know? Well, I wrote a song about this. Oh, yeah? Oh, o- old McDonald had a startup, dot AI, dot LY, dot IO. Yeah. And on that startup, he had some employees, dot AI, dot LY, dot IO. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I always say if my mom thinks the domain extension is a virus, then it shouldn't be a company name. She's <laughs> like, is dot IO, like, are they trying to, like, take my credit card information? <laughs> All right. Hold on. We got me and time's flying today. All right. We got 12 yeah, minutes, yeah. 10, 12 minutes left. I want to talk about the, the, the final step, which is when we go from manager to second line manager, which could be a director. Yeah. It could be vice president, depending on yeah. how big your company is. And I think the big thing for me here is that when you're a frontline manager, there's the temptation. And a lot of people do go down and do the person's job for them. And I know yes. that's not what, what should happen, but it can happen. You can't yes. do that if you're two levels above the person. Yes. So how do we take this manager and get them ready to be a director of VP? So it's a very good question and, and actually a topic of conversation I've been having with so many PDR managers over the last couple of years because there's no clearly defined path. So here are some of the ways that you know it could happen for people. And then I can talk about you know exit criteria from a manager to a director or director like more formally. Um, I love how you say exit criteria. Like it's a, it's you've got this, you you have such a formal process mind around this. This is awesome. Thanks. Um, well, my microphone just went out. I hope you can still hear me. Oh, this is great. Um, so I, I think um, the way that it works right now for B, BDR managers that move to directors, um, there's a couple of pathways. One is at your current company, you demonstrate business level thinking. So where you're able to do that is think bigger than just a BDR management team, but thinking about what does it mean, the implications of whatever it is you do, how you are driven to make decisions by the overall business. So what does this mean in terms of actual close on revenue? And I think every BDR manager is smart enough to say that out loud, but I don't get the sense that they actually know what this actually means, right? Because I hear this a lot. Oh, well, it drives close on revenue. I'm like, okay, how? What is this? Why? How did you come to this decision? How does driving more close one revenue actually impact the decisions that you're making? And how are you optimizing for that? And a big part of it is sometimes these decisions may be counter to your personal interests. So for instance, that might mean holding your BDR team to a higher qualification standard, right? This is also another big topic for SDR managers, right? Self-policing. How do you make sure that the stuff that you're sending over the fence, for lack of better words, is actually qualified opportunities. Maybe you don't have a definition, maybe you got to find a definition for it, but holding that greater standard is is a key indicator to say like this person is thinking about this the right way. Because that can become political at some point, right? You got two days left in a month. Like, hey, how is this? I want to get this thing over. But, but see, that's the thing. Like when the moment that someone thinks it's political or anything, any sort of self-interest, means that they're not thinking in the best interests for the business, right? Yeah. If, if you were a CEO, how would you tell yourself to act? And that's always really guided me, right? It's like, well, my CEO or myself as CEO wouldn't want me to bicker about these things. I'll voice the, you know, the concern 
But understanding where the business is and kind of where we're going, these are the things that have to be. And it's helped me overcome a lot of periods of friction with internal stakeholders, et cetera, right? But it's thinking, number one, most importantly, thinking about the business, thinking and acting in the best interest in the business, right? Yep. Number two is, um, you know, ownership of your current role today, right? So being a really good manager. Um, and if you can't be a good manager, it's hard to be a good director because your role is to develop good managers, right? So you need to understand how to actually do that. It doesn't need to be perfect, but you need to be at least good at the role because if you're not, you're going to struggle and your team is going to fail, right? Your managers that under you will fail because you need to think about how do you set them up for success? How do you be uh, creating the vision for them to kind of cling on to as they, you know, continue to advance their careers and do their work, right? Um, and then number three, uh, really importantly, is cross-functional relationships, right? So the unique role being an SDR leader, you have to really know marketing and sales pretty well and ops, right? You can't just be an AE leader that's really good at, you know, getting your team to hit the number, which is really important. And I don't want to downplay that at all. But moving from a AE manager to AE director, you don't necessarily need to know marketing to a really finite level, right? So like if you were to ask me like, Jimmy, why don't you just do some, you know, if, if they if marketing needs help, I can step in and be deadly just by the level of exposure I've had at a very granular level to all the ops, to all the demand gen, all of that, right? And then on the sales side, I can at the very least manage leaders, right? How do you replicate some of that and develop those skill sets, right? Yeah. So those are the three big things. Um, the, the pitfalls of this, right? And, and actually how it also happens is like, Sometimes the business might not be ready to have a director level SDR leader. They just need someone to own the role. And that's a really difficult conversation to have to be had with BDR leaders, more so either in um, these smaller organizations where they just are not at that scale yet, or really, really big organizations where you don't actually get to do enough of the, the things beyond just managing people, right? So you need to find a happy medium somewhere. Yeah. Uh, in order to find those positions and develop that skill set, right? Or figure out a way to do it across your own organization. Um, as a second line leader, right? The role is quite different. You do even less, which sucks because I'm a doer, like a lot of other people that, you know, take on a sales role, manager role, et cetera, right? And a lot of it is understanding how do you, how do you allocate resources from the perspective of people and time, Right to drive a significant outcome and thinking more strategically and strategically meaning not just doing what's in front of you, but looking at unconventional ways or other options and assessing, you know, how you're going to able to drive a specific outcome to do that. Whether that's, you know, I'll give you an example, whether it's changing your structure, for instance, like, you know, reorging your team, maybe it's changing your emotion a little bit. Maybe it's about lead flow. Maybe it's all of these different considerations that you wouldn't necessarily be thinking about that is understanding where the sales development sit in the greater go-to-market system. And having that perspective is very important, right? Yeah. And the perspective, I think there's there's three things that I would want someone to really master. And I'd love your thoughts on this. Is There's one, just the, the qualitative piece around how does it work? Two, maybe a little more detailed than that is the process of 
specific, and I talk about this a lot in the podcast, I think four out of my last six guests have really got into write down your process, specifically understand all the steps, all the tools, all the people, how everything interacts with each other. Because if it's not written down, nobody actually knows it. And then the third piece is the financial model, which you alluded to a couple of times around knowing, you know, what, how much ARR is this, you know, and then the activities to outcomes, sales math, as you, as you do all of that, and then what impact it has on the business, what your cost structure is, what actually costs to have a team, what you get out of the team and things like this. So you've got the, the high level qualitative piece, the process piece, and then the financial model quantitative piece. What are your thoughts on mastery around those three topics and order of importance or they're all important? I mean, I, I think uh, it depends on what level of second line leader you are. So uh, at the higher end of director, like as you approach sort of the VP level, the third, which is like the financial model is going to be much more important, right? Because the assumption is that the first two have already been sort of figured out. Yep. But if you're a new director, you're probably going to lean on building that process and understanding what's going on and doing the job really well, Right. And what the first one was around, I'm sorry, I've forgotten. Just qualitative understanding of, I know how, I know who's who in the zoo. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's also very important, right? But that, I think that will come over time just as you continue to ramp in the role. What we're seeing now as a trend though, is that the third is probably the most important given our macroeconomic situation and and the market for BDR leadership today. The, The quantitative piece is important. If anybody feels like you were passed by if you didn't learn this in college, if you didn't get any formal education around financial model development or spreadsheet mastery, email free stuff at coachcrm.com. I've got spreadsheets for salespeople just for you. You work with real CRM data to learn things like VLOOKUPs and pivot tables and all of the other types of functions that you'll need to manipulate sales data. Hit me up. Yeah. Well, Jimmy, I know we're, we're running out of time. Any parting words or anything you want to plug today? No. Uh, no, nothing, nothing to uh, plug. Um, I'll reserve this space for another time. Maybe in the future, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll hit you up. But other than free stuff at coachcrm.com, which I'm now a big fan of, I don't have anything to plug. But I, I guess parting words for you know new leaders, like you're not alone. I know it's a really tough time out there in 2023. You know the macroeconomic situation has definitely not helped. Um, but part of it is it forces us as a function to be better about all of the things that we talked about, right? How do you better understand your role in the business? How do you understand the system? How do you play a big part in that and thinking as, as an overall business? Those things will never change. And those things will separate the best leaders from people that uh, are not quite as good. That's so. what my high school basketball coach used to always say every day. He'd say, boys, we're here to get better today. And if you That's get better right. every single day, then you end up in this position. It's a, it's an amazing way to think about life. Here's I'll give you one, one wise sage wisdom advice piece content thing that I heard a long time ago is that if that's your mindset, then today is the best that you've ever been. And it's the worst that you'll ever be. If you continue to get better, Jimmy, thank you so much. Jimmy Chen, director of sales development envoy. I'm Corey Bray, host of the coach host of the sales management podcast, co-founder of coach CRM. Check out a free version, coach CRM, coach CRM.com. We got a lot of things over there for you and like subscribe Apple, Spotify, Sales Management Podcast. We'll see you next time.